0: chapter 23 of the harbor of doubt this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by roger moline the harbor of doubt by frank williams chapter 23 surprises 15 minutes later a small boat rowed smartly by six sailors in white canvas came alongside the midship's ladder of the netty b At a word from the officer, the six oars rose as one vertically into the air, and the bowman staved off the cutter so that she brought up without a scratch. A young man in dark blue sprang out of the stern sheets upon the deck. "'Nettie B., of Freekirk Head?' he asked. "'Captain Burns, commanding?' "'Yes,' said Nat, stepping forward. "'I am Captain Burns. What do you want?' "'I come from the gunboat Albatross,' said the officer, "'and represent Captain Foraker. "'You have on board, have you not, "'a man named Code Schofield, also of Freekirkhead, "'under arrest for the murder of a man or men "'on the occasion of the sinking of his schooner?' "'Nat scowled. "'Yes,' he said. "'I arrested him myself in St. Pierre, Michelon.' I am a constable in Freekirk Head. Just as we understood, remarked the officer, blandly, Captain Foraker desires me to thank you for your prompt and efficient work in this matter, though I can tell you on the side, Captain Burns, that the old man is rather put out that he didn't get the fellow himself. We chased up and down the banks looking for him but we never got within sight of as much as his main truck sticking over the horizon. And the Petrel, that's our steamer, you know, well, sir, maybe he didn't make a fool of her. Payson, on the Petrel, is the ugliest man in the service, and when this fellow Schofield led him a chase of a 150 miles and then got away among the islands of Placentia Bay, they say Payson nearly had apoplexy so your getting him ought to be quite a feather in your cap. I consider that I did my duty, but would you mind telling me what you have signaled me for? Burns resented the gossip of this young whippersnapper of the service who seemed, despite his frankness, to have something of a patronizing air. Certainly. Captain Foraker desires me to tell you that he wished the prisoner transferred to the albatross. We know that you are not provided with an absolutely secure place to keep the prisoner, and as we are on our way to St. Andrew's on another matter, the skipper thinks he might just as well take the fellow in and hand him over to the authorities. "'Well, I don't agree with your skipper,' snapped Burns. "'I got Schofield, and I'm going to deliver him. He's safe enough, don't you worry.' When you go back, you can tell Captain Foraker that Schofield is in perfectly good hands. The pleasant, amiable manner of the subaltern underwent a quick change. He at once became the stern, businesslike representative of the government. "'I am sorry, Captain Burns, but I shall deliver no such message, and when I go back I shall have the criminal with me. Those are my orders.' and I intend to carry them out. He turned to the six sailors sitting quietly in the boat, their oars still in the air. Unship oars, he commanded. The sweeps fell away, three on each side. Squad on deck! The men scrambled up the short ladder and lined up in two rows of three. At his belt, each man carried a revolver and cutlasses swung at their sides. Now, requested the officer amiably, will you please lead me to the prisoner? Nat's face darkened into a scowl of black rage, and he cursed under his breath. It was just his luck, he told himself, that when he was about to triumph, some of these government loafers should come along and take the credit out of his hands. For a moment he thought of resistance. All his crew were on deck— drawn by curiosity but he saw they were vastly impressed by the discipline of the visitors and by their decidedly warlike appearance if he resisted there would be blood spilt and he did not like the thought of that he finally admitted to himself that the young officer was only carrying out orders and orders that were absolutely just well come along He snarled ungraciously and started forward. The officer spoke a word of command, and the squad marched after him as he, in turn, followed Nat. Of all this, Code had been ignorant, for the conversation had taken place too far aft for him to hear. His first warning was when the sailors marched past the window and Nat reluctantly opened the door of the old storeroom. ''Officers are here to get you, Schofield,'' said the skipper of the Nettie B. ''Come out!'' Wonderingly, Code stepped into the sunlight and open air and saw the officer with his escort. With the resignation that he had summoned during his five days of imprisonment, he accepted his fate. ''I am ready,'' he said. ''Let's go, as soon as possible.'' ''Captain Schofield!'' said the subaltern you are to be transferred and i trust you will deem it advisable to go peaceably catching sight of the six armed sailors code could not help grinning there's no question about it he said i will form cordon ordered the officer and the sailors surrounded him two before two beside and two behind In this order, they marched to the cutter. Code was told to get in first and take a seat looking aft. He did so, and the officer dropped into the stern sheets so as to face his prisoner. The sailors took their position, shipped their oars smartly, and the cutter was soon underway to the gunboat. Arrived at the accommodation ladder and on deck, Code found a vessel with white decks glistening brasswork and discipline that shamed naval authority. The subaltern, saluting, reported to the deck officer that his mission had been completed, and the latter, after questioning code, ordered that he be taken to confinement quarters. These quarters, unlike the pen on the Netty B, were below the deck, but were lighted by a porthole. The room was larger, had a comfortable bunk, a small table loaded with magazines, a chair, and a sanitary porcelain washstand. The luxury of the appointments was a revelation. There was no question of his escaping from this room, he very soon discovered. The door was of heavy oak and locked on the outside. The walls were of solid, smooth timber, and the porthole was too small to admit the possibility of his escaping through it. The roof was formed of the deck planks. He had hardly examined his surroundings when he heard a voice in sharp command on deck and the running of feet, creaking of blocks, and straining of sheets as sail was got on the vessel. His room presently took an acute angle to starboard, and he realized that, with the fair gale on the quarter, they must be crowding her with canvas. He could tell by the look of the water as it flew past his port that the remainder of the trip to St. Andrews would not take long. He knew the course there from his present position must be north, a little west, across the Bay of Fundy. The Nettie B, when compelled to surrender her prisoner, had rounded Nova Scotia and was on the home stretch toward Quaddy Roads. She was, in fact, less than thirty miles away from Grand Mignon Island, and Code had thought with a great and bitter homesickness of the joy just a sight of her would be. He longed for the white swallowtail lighthouse with its tin swallow above, for the tumbled green-clothed granite of the harbor approaches, for the black sharp-toothed reefs that showed on the half-water near the can buoy and for the procession of stately headlands to north and south fading from sight in a mantle of purple and gray but most of all for the crescent of stony beach the nestle of white cottages along the king's road and the green background of the mountain beyond with mallaby house in the very heart of it this had been his train of thought when Burns had opened the door to deliver him up to the gunboat, and now it returned to him as the staunch vessel under him winged her way across the blue afternoon sea. He wondered if the albatross would pass close enough inshore for him to get a glimpse of Mignon's tall and forbidding fog-wreathed headlands. Just a moment of this familiar sight would be balm to his bruised spirit He felt that he could gather strength from the sight of home. He had been among aliens so long, but no nearer than just a glimpse. He made a firm resolution never to push the prow of the lass into Flag Cove until he stood clear of the charges against him. He admitted that it might take years, but his resolution was none the less strong. His place of confinement was on the starboard side of the albatross, and he was gratified after a few minutes to see the sun pouring through his porthole. Despair had left him now, and he was quietly cheerful. With something akin to pleasure that the struggle was over, and that events were out of his hands for the time being, he settled down in his chair and picked up a magazine. He had hardly opened it when a thought occurred to him. If the course was north a little west, how did it happen that the sun streamed into his room which was on the east side of the ship on that course? He sprang to the port and looked out. The sun smote him full in the face. He strained his eyes against the horizon that was unusually clear for this foggy sea. AND WOULD HAVE SWORN THAT ALONG ITS EDGE WAS A DARK LINE OF LAND. THE CONCLUSION WAS INEVITABLE. THE ALBATROSS WAS FLYING DIRECTLY SOUTH, AS FAST AS HER WHOLE SPREAD OF CANVAS COULD TAKE HER. SCHOFIELD COULD NOT EXPLAIN THIS phenomenon TO HIMSELF, NOR DID HE TRY. THE ORDERS THAT A MAN OF WAR SAILED UNDER WERE NONE OF HIS AFFAIR. And if the captain chose to institute a hunt for the North Pole before delivering a prisoner in port, naturally he had a perfect right to do so. It was possible, Code told himself, that another miserable wretch was to be picked up before they were both landed together. Whatever course Captain Foraker intended to lay in the future, his present one was taking him as far as possible away from Grand Mignon. St. Andrew's, and St. John's. And for this meager comfort, Code Schofield was thankful. The sun remained above the horizon until six o'clock, and then suddenly plumped into the sea. The early September darkness rushed down, and as it did so, a big tungsten light in the ceiling of Code's room sprang into a brilliant glow, the iron cover to the porthole being shut at the same instant. A few moments later, the door of his cell was unceremoniously opened, and a man entered, bearing an armful of fresh clothing. Captain Schofield, he said, with the deference of a servant, the captain wishes your presence at dinner. The ship's barber will be here presently. Etiquette provides that you wear these clothes. I will fix them and lay them out for you if you care for a bath sir i will draw it say look here exclaimed our hero with a sudden and unexpected touch of asperity if you're trying to kid me old side-whiskers you're due for the licking of your life he got deliberately upon his feet and removed the fishing coat which he had worn uninterruptedly since the night at st pierre I thought I'd read about you in that magazine or something and had fallen asleep, but here you are still in the room. I'm going to see whether you're alive or not. No one can mention a bath to me with impunity. He made a sudden grab for the servant, who stood with mouth open, uncertain as to whether or not he was dealing with a lunatic. Before he could move, code's hard strong hands closed upon his arms in a grip that brought a bellow of pain in deadly fear of his life he babbled protests apologies and pleadings in an incoherent medley that would have satisfied the most toughened skeptic code released him laughing well i guess you're real all right he said Now, if you're in earnest about all this, draw that bath quick. Then I'll believe you. Half an hour later, Code, bathed, shaved, and feeling like a different man, was luxuriating in fresh linen and a comfortable suit. Look here, Martin, he said to the valet. Of course I know that this is no more the gunboat albatross than I am. THE CANADIAN GOVERNMENT ISN'T IN THE HABIT OF TREATING PRISONERS IN EXACTLY THIS MANNER. WHAT BOAT IS THIS? MARTIN coughed a little before answering. In all his experience, he had never before been asked to dress the skipper of a fishing vessel. I was told to say, sir, in case you asked, that you are aboard the mystery schooner, sir. What? What? The mystery schooner that led the steamer that chase? Yes, sir. Well, by the great trawl hook. And I didn't know it. No, sir. Remember, we came up behind the Nettie B, and when you were transferred, you were made to sit facing away from this ship so you would not recognize her. Then all the guns were fakes. "'And the whole business of a man of war as well?' cried Code, astonished almost out of his wits by this latest development in his fortunes. "'Yes, sir. The appearances were false. But as for the steamship, sir, this vessel could not do what she does were it not for the strict training aboard her, sir. I'll wager our lads can outmaneuver and outsail any schooner of her tonnage on the seas.' Glosterman included. The Navy is easy compared to our discipline. But what holds the men to it if it's so hard? Double wages and loyalty to the captain. Captain Foricker? Yes, sir. There, sir, that tie is beautiful. Now the waistcoat and coat. If you will permit me, sir, you look, as I might say, handsome, begging your pardon. Code flushed and looked into the glass that hung against the wall of his cabin. He barely recognized the clean-shaven, clear-eyed, broad-shouldered youth he saw there as the rough, salty skipper of the schooner, charming lass. He wondered with a chuckle what Pete Ellenwood would say if he could see him and now sir if you're ready just come with me sir dinner is at seven and it is now a quarter to the hour stunned by the wonders already experienced and vaguely hoping that the dream would last forever code followed the bewhiskered valet down a narrow passage carpeted with a stuff so thick that it permitted no sound martin passed several doors The passage was lighted by small electrics, and finally paused before one on the right-hand side. Here he knocked, and apparently receiving an answer, peered into the room for a moment. Withdrawing his head, he swung the door open and turned to Schofield. "'Go right in, sir,' he said, and Code, eager for new wonders, stepped past him. The room was a small sitting-room, lighted softly by inverted bowl-shaped globes of glass so colored as to bring out the full value of the pink velours and satin brocades with which the room was hung and the furniture covered. For a moment he stared without seeing anything, and then a slight rustling in a far corner diverted his attention. He looked sharply and saw a woman rise from a lounge and come toward him with outstretched hands. She was Elsa Mallaby. End of chapter 23 Recording by Roger Moline